with him being a chief, although his name was changed, has his identity remained the same. And how I look at him, with everything that he knew from his homeland, he brought it here. Welcome to Black Educators Matter. This is more than a moment. It's a movement. Hey, it's Danielle. Welcome to Black Educators Matter. Our goal is to share the stories of 500 Black educators. We will celebrate the impact and achievements, learn from the lessons and challenges, and highlight the important roles that educators play in all of our lives. I'm excited to welcome today's guest to our show. As a do now, please tell us your name, your role in education, and answer the question, why do Black educators matter? My name is Joycelyn Davis. I'm from Mobile, Alabama, Africa Town. I am a I am a direct descendant of Charlie Lewis and Maggie Lewis, one of the survivors of the Clotilda. And I have worked in a preschool area for 20 years. Now I am working in the elementary school scale, which I work with children with autism. Why do black educators matter? When I think about black educators and as a child growing up, it's always good to see a black teacher. Our African-American teachers know what struggles that our kids go through, but sometimes some of the other teachers may not know how to handle a situation. We know firsthand what home life is like. So when a child comes to school and act out, we'll see the problem and we know directly how to handle it. Now, Ms. Davis, you said that you are from Mobile, Alabama, Africatown. Yes. Now, what does that mean? What is Africatown? To shorten the story, in 1808, the importation of slaves was still illegal. In 1858, there was a war between tribes in the King of Dahomey, in the Kingdom of Dahomey, present-day Benin. So there were some wealthy businessmen here in Mobile who got word of that and decided to make a bet that they could go over and smuggle and enslave Africans without being caught. So in 1860, these brave Africans came to Mobile and started Africatown. When they were denied that they could not go back home, after they worked for five years, they asked could they go back home, and they were denied. So they decided to make Mobile Africatown, a little small section in Mobile called Africatown. So growing up in Africatown, what was your K through A educational experience like? It was great. It was great. With it being a small town, like my mother's teachers were still at my middle school when I started. And her friends who went off to college, they came back were my teachers. So everything was close-knit. The educators lived in the area. It was great. It was great. You went to church with your, my uh, my 10th grade math teacher was a member of our church when I went to community college. One of my other math teachers goes to my church. So we were always surrounded by those educators in the community. Was it a diverse community at all, or were most of the residents descendants of people who uh, migrated to Africatown after they were 
freed from slavery? Well, no, not diverse at all. It's 100% black. And so what about high school? Did you attend high school in that same area? I did, but our high school was 60, probably 60, 40, 40, 60. And what was that experience like? It was great. It was great. I, um, I'm a die hard for my high school. So, cause I say that because those same kids that I went to elementary school and middle school, we all went to high school together. So we, there was a bond. It was, it was a bond with us going to high school together with us, you know, growing up together, probably even preschool, preschool, elementary, middle, and we all went to high school together. So for the people who went to like high school that were not residents of Africa town, so your white classmates and even white neighbors around the area, what were race relations like if you can remember when you were growing up between members of Mobile, Alabama, and then like residents of Africa town, that subsection within Mobile? Well, during that time, I went to high school with, I can, I'll just call his name, um, a good friend of mine, Richie. And we started ninth grade all the way to, we we took classes together from ninth to twelfth grade. And his family, during that time, there were a lot of white people who had businesses in the area. Well, outside of the area. So that was that connection. But race relations, we, that wasn't, we all got along. We all got along with one another. Okay. So what led you to begin a career in education? I have always been the babysitter and I've always had a love for children. And growing up in the community and seeing that, you know, most of our children just need love. So I went into the early childhood education field because it's needed, you know, when you go in the education field, you you have to love it and you have to love children. And if if you don't, you don't need to go into it at all. And how long have you been working in education? You said you started as a preschool teacher and now you're supporting elementary school students with autism? Mm -hmm. This will be my 24th year. Okay. (laughs) This will be my 24th year. I I worked at a community college here in Mobile that was um, founded by S.D. Bishop and also Dr. Yvonne Kennedy both African-American. I worked at that college. I went to the college and then I got a job there working in the early childhood education program. So I did that for 20 years, but due to, you know, financial things, our department was eliminated. So now I work in an elementary school. Okay. So shout out to you for graduating from that college, that community college that was founded by black people and then going back to teach and serve at that school, which is what you said, like some of the educators in Africa town did, like they were from the community, your mom's friend went off to college and came back and taught at your school, like pouring back into the community that poured so much into you. What has been the most impactful moment you've had as an educator thus far? Seeing the children grow and hearing from their parents You know, they've gone, they've graduated high school and now some of them are in college. I started young. So just to see them now, you know, sometimes when you think about your teachers and when you see them later in life, you wonder, you go, well, I wonder how old she was when she started. You know, it's like when you see them, like, well, I wonder how old is Miss Smith now? (laughs) But when I see them, it's like, you know, 
with me, you know, social media is like, okay, this person is, is in college now. This person is, they pledge and they, you know, it's just amazing to see them to know that I help them in their development, which is great, which it is, it's just so great. And even when I, you know, their parents go, if it wasn't for you, we appreciate what you did. And what our preschool daycare at the college was for faculty, staff, and students. So most of the, the kids that I work with, their parents were enhancing their education as well. So it was like a win-win for both the parent and the child. They went they went through trying to go to nursing school or whatever. So it's just been great. Even to see their parents' success, nursing, on their own business. So it's it's been great. See, that's that cycle, like that pouring into the <laughs> generations. That's what I love oh, about man. education and the role of black educators is like pouring that love and liberation to generations through education. So speaking of that, speaking of all of the generations and and <laughs> just the impact of it all, what is the state of education in black America and how did we get here? The state where it is now, I have a son who I didn't birth, and he's at Stillman College now. So that generation, and even some of my generation, where I see it is we become educated and we leave. You know, it's like, okay, I'm going to get my degree and I'm gone. So I want to see that generation, the the 20s, the 30s pour back into the communities where I see where I am now. I would like to see more of that pour in the, in, in the community because I remember there was a time where, you know, we didn't know anyone who had a master's or a doctorate, but now it, within your family, you know someone who has a bachelor's or master's or uh, uh, their own business and everything. So where we are now is I want to see it. I want to see more people give back. Mm-hmm. Now, let's talk about the Clotilda Descendants Association. When we started, you told us that you were a descendant of Charlie and Maggie Lewis. Who were Charlie and Maggie Lewis? That's a great question. A great, great question. Charlie Lewis and Maggie Lewis were one of the survivors of the Clotilda. And I say that was a good question because I am the organizer of the Spirit of Our Ancestors Festival. Oftentimes when I'm asked who am I a descendant of, I have always mentioned Charlie and not Maggie. So just to say this, for 2021, I'm honoring the women. Charlie Lewis, which he, that was his enslaved name, of course, He was his name is Chief Oluwole. So I'm trying to start saying his name was Chief Oluwole and his wife, Maggie Lewis. They were both survivors of the Clotilda, co-founders of Africatown. Chief Oluwole and some of his shipmates were enslaved by Colonel Thomas Buford, and they saved money, they bought land, and they named it Lewis's Quarters, and it was established in 1870, in which some of my family members still live today. I need to hear more. You got to keep walking us through, Chief Oluwole. So these white men made a bet that they could not go over to Africa and exploit a war that was happening there between the Dahomey tribes. Right. Well, it's so many layers to the story, and I'm still reading, still learning. Mm-hmm. There was 
there was a war between two tribes in uh, the kingdom of Dahomey. And that article was published in the Mobile Press Rest in 1858. And I had to go down to the genealogy library. I was like, I have to see this article myself to make sure that it was indeed in the press register. So it was there. That happened in 1858. Timothy Mayer which his name is, is big and mobile because that family, the descendants of that family, their net worth is worth $36 million today. He was the, I would say, there were several masterminds in this story, but his name seems to be the forefront person. But he made a bet. It was Timothy Mayer and his business partners. When I say and his business partners, because he there were 110. So they had to be split. So... Captain, he, he sent Captain Foster to Benin. You know, he was a mastermind, so he didn't go himself. He, he sent Captain Foster to do this. And again, when I say it was him and his business partners, Colonel Thomas Buford was the enslaver of my ancestor. So the story is so, is so many layers to the story because he had he hired Captain William Foster, who was the best sea captain from Mississippi. So he hired him to go over to Benin, but Captain Foster did not go empty-handed. He went over with $9,000 in gold because it was a business deal. So those other, those landowners and business partners, so to speak, they had to put in for it because they also had enslaved Africans too, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. So they went over there, and then what happened? See, that's the thing, and I encourage people to read The Slave Ship Cotilda and the Makings of Africa, Africa Town by Dr. Natalie Robinson, Dreams of Africa and Alabama by Sylvia Ann Duo. See, this is the thing. Growing up, when I heard the story, they was like, okay, there was a bet made, and they went over to Africa, and they, they got 110 Africans. But it's so many layers. Okay, so he went over, and before even going to... Let me, let me go back. Before... William Foster went over. He had to hire a crew. They had to have food. And those are some things I didn't know growing up as a child. You know, you you hear a a horror story, but you have to know everything that happened. So there was water on the ship. There was bread. There was flour. There was vinegar. So they wanted to develop scurry. They didn't want to have any vitamin D deficiency. So they set sail and it took 45 days. But even... Before Foster could come ashore, he had to get permission. Okay, because in my little mind, I'm thinking, okay, if Foster went over with the crew, and there were 110, it was 55 women and 55 men, our people could have easily taken over Foster and those few little men. But you have to think about, in in my mind, that's why I want to go to Benin. I want to sit down, and we can have this reconciliation what was their part in this? How did King Glee capture those Africans? What was the process? Because they all did not come from the same tribe. They they came from different tribes and they spoke different languages. So they would commun they did this so they wouldn't communicate with each other on the ship. And you know, there was the this thing of the door of no return. I wanna know if that is correct. The tree of forgiveness. I want to know if that is correct and how Captain Foster was treated like a king when he came to Benin. You know, and there was an exchange. Captain Foster didn't go over there empty handed. That's the, the thing about the Clotilda story. 
but I try not to think about the horrific things that my family went through, which it happened and there is post-traumatic slavery syndrome, but I think about the resilience and what they did. They had a five-year plan and they stuck to it. They hit the ground running when it came to the United States. They built a church, they formed a community, they built a school, and they had the same things that the, the tribal things that they had in Africa, they did it here in Alabama. This is just one of many stories, and we want to keep the conversation going. Follow us on Instagram at blackeducators.matter. Visit us online at www.blackeducatorsmatter.org. Help build the movement by joining our Patreon. Now, let's get back to our Project 500 podcast. That is such an incredible story. And thank you for sharing that. And thank you for sharing those resources. When you talk about Africatown and how Chief Olu'ole Mm-hmm. And his wife, Maggie, how they, plus the other co-founders, brought some of that culture from their native land over to Africatown. What are some of those elements? You mentioned like they built a church, they built a school, but what made those elements connected to their homeland? Just with him being a chief, you know, I was, I, I did this um, interview, I was like, although his name was changed has his identity remained the same and you know how I look at him with everything that he knew from his homeland he brought it here now and I'm sure there was some some type of envy for those who were already here like they came here and you know it's like okay we know y'all been doing it this way but we're gonna do it this way we're gonna buy this land from these individuals we're going to build our own church because they were made fun of. They were called savages. They, you know, they tried to form a church in uh, another part of Mobile and, you know, they were teased. So it was like, okay, that's fine. We're going to make our own. We're going to build our own church. We're going to build our own community. So that's one of the things that I, that I can take from them, what they took from their homeland. And they had meetings with one. They would meet every Sunday. They would, you know, have meetings. And also there was Goompa, who was a, a prince from the Fun tribe. He was still considered royalty, although his name was changed. Their identity still stayed the same. Mm-hmm. Now, how did they earn the money to buy the land? Is it because when they were brought over here, the importation of slavery was illegal? Because, of, like you said, it's so many layers And the timeline is so critical. And of course, in our mainstream history classes, we don't learn this level of analysis and how all of this went through, all of this went down and all of the players involved in this. How were they able to like earn money to buy land? It's it's crazy because they work for the mayor family which they didn't earn no more than $2 a day. And from, you know, my understanding that they, they didn't even give him a dollar themselves, but then they kept the other dollar. So they, you know, they had to, to they work for, <laughs> they work for their enslavers and they saved their money. So collectively, they did it together. They stuck together. Mm-hmm. 
you mentioned that you are the organizer of the Spirit of Our Ancestors Festival. Can you tell us a little bit more about what that is? Well, there was an organization in the 80s called the Direct Descendants of Africatown. And that organization kind of, well, I can say this new organization is like a, a revamp of that organization. So I want to pay homage to the original group. So I'm just going to say how the Spirit of Our Ancestors came about is when Ben Rames thought he found a Clotilda because that was a big thing here. Is find you know the Clotilda ship was found because they found out that the that the U.S. Marshals was after them and they burned the ship right. So there's this reporter here in Mobile who went looking for the ship in 2018. When we found out that it was not the ship the first time, we had this big 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 community thing and. When they found out it was not the ship, I saw the look on everybody's faces like, oh, man, you know, we didn't find the ship. And I was thinking to myself, are we more focused on the ship or are we more focused on the people? Right. So, you know, that was my whole thing. Now, I met this young lady from the Smithsonian name is Mary Elliott. She's a curator at the African-American Museum in Washington. And we had this seminar at church and I was telling her about who was my inspiration. I always wanted to do festivals and so forth. So she said, and I was telling her about my aunt who was our family historian, how she did these festivals. And she asked me point blank, so what are you doing? And I had to stop and I was like, well, I'm not, you know, I want to have a festival, but I don't know. She was like, but what are you doing? So that gave, that put some fire on my tail that night when I met her. You know, I laid some books out, and I was trying to figure out a title, you know, Here Comes the Harvest or whatever. And I was reading Dr. Natalie's book, and it was closed, and then I was, it's called Slave Ship Clotilde and the Makers of Africa Town, Spirit of Our Ancestors. And it was like, I kept saying, Spirit of Our Ancestors, Spirit of Our Ancestors. And that's how I came up with the title. So, therefore, I reached out to all of the families because in front of my church, you have the names of the founders of the church. And I know the different families, and I know that these families have stories. Now, for years, Kudja Lewis, which he is the face of Africa Town, if you've ever read Barracoon by Zora Neale Hurston, but there were several others who came with him. And just like my ancestor, he has a story, Goompa. So I wanted to get the families together. So they can tell their stories. And after my first festival, that's when the Clotilda Descendants Association formed. I got a chance to get with all these other families that say, hey, let's do this. We need to do this because the focus was so much on the ship and not the people. I was like, we need to come together and form an organization to have events, have festivals so we can celebrate our ancestors. Mm-hmm. Now, you mentioned earlier that you wanted to um, celebrate the women. Tell us about Maggie. You told us about Chief Oluwale. Who was Maggie? See, that's the question. And, and um, I've been tr- and I, now I've been trying to write my script for the event. She is a name without a face. Because I have, we have a picture of him. Because the first book was written in 1914 by this lady named Emma Lane Rose. It's called Historic Sketches of the South. Now, she has sketches of Chief Alule, Kudja Lewis, and some of the others. Maybe two women. But not not Maggie. 
Now her name is listed because you we have a a captain's log, and her name is listed, not her what tribe she came from or nothing. So she's a name without a face. So what I'm doing now is um you know just reading about the Yoruba women. I don't know if she came from that tribe, but I'm if she's a mystery. You know, sometimes I do try to channel in my ancestors. So she's coming to me to tell me who she is, who who she is. So she's a mystery. But I know she worked alongside of her husband. She, I can just imagine. My question is, did they meet each other in Africa or did they decide to get married when they came over to the United States? So she's a mystery. She is a name without a face. Mm, mm, mm. So how have you grown since you started your career in education? You were always the babysitter, but now you have this like innate love of supporting children, plus this added layer of being a member of the Clotilda Descendants Association. How have you grown since like really stepping into your identity? I've grown, I've become more patient, more understanding. I would love to see more systems in place for our kids. I attend my high school, which now, when I was going to the high school, it was 60-40, but now it is 100% African-American. So I sit and observe. Uh, um, my family still, you know, I, I guess, well, sometimes I, I can say this, you know, you have families that go to a certain high school and then the whole family goes there. So I still have cousins who are basketball, football, cheerleaders but when I sit and observe these children I see that there is still a need for our kids and I what I would like to see is some type of systems in place where our kids can see some type of therapy because it's needed and I know within African-American community we don't want to you know see counseling or anything but I still I see a need so I'm growing in that but I need help you know if we can send tutors to our community center, tutors in the school, but how I've grown, um, I work with kids with autism. So now I, this is my third year. So I'm not ignorant to the fact of people with autism, which they are so, so smart and so, so sweet. I enjoy it. It's never a dull moment. So now I know the ways of children with autism. I know how to handle them. You know, when you see people out in the stores, Growing up as a kid, some people will be afraid of, of people with special needs, but I know how to approach them now, and I can educate others about how to deal with kids with autism. Earlier, you mentioned post-traumatic slave syndrome. What is that? My goal with the Descendants Association and with my festivals is to get that great keynote speaker. And I saw this with Dr. Joy DeGruy. When I saw her, I, I watched some bits and pieces of, because she has a book that called, it's called Post Traumatic Slavery Syndrome. And it made a lot of sense because I think about my mother, my grandmother, you know, some things that, you know, your parents would do as far as being angry about something. Or, well, you might say, well, this family member is not that cry right. These things would trickle down. If, you, if I think about my ancestors being captured, their clothes being taken away, being shackled on a ship for 45 days, little to eat. And, and mind you, again, they were naked. They had to urinate or defecate right where they were. 
and they came the ages range from two to twenty five. So there were toddlers on this ship. So the trauma that they went through, they didn't they didn't have any therapy, no therapist, no medication to go through, and all these things, all those years of that trickle down throughout generations. So I want to learn more about that from Dr. Joy DeGroote, and I would like to invite her to Africatown so she could talk more about post-traumatic slavery syndrome because I don't think that people in my community have touched on that. Mm-hmm. What advice do you have for first-year educators? <laughs> That's funny. Gosh, it's tough. It's tough. It depends on, you know, what district that you're in, of course. Be open-minded. Learn about the area. Learn about the area that you're going to. Because sometimes you may have teachers that are just unfamiliar with the community. So become familiar with that community. Don't just make it a place where you just go, I'm going to do my hours, and I'm going to leave. Please become familiar with the area. I have a friend that's in the in the field. Well, we all have friends in the field. It's like, okay, you know, you're not going to be rich in it, you know. And I know the younger generation, even my generation, you know, we all want to be rich. But think about why you're going into it. Now, are you going to be an inspiration to someone? Are you going to be impacted? Don't just do this and say this is just a job because you will be miserable. <laughs> you will be miserable. You don't want to be that teacher. Because kids remember, what they, it's not what you said or how, it's how you treat them. You know, they need love. They need love. So just go in it. Don't go in it lightly because education is important and our kids are important. So I just feel like if you, if this is not what you want to do, don't do it. Thank you for sharing your story. Thank you for sharing your family story, your community story, the story of Africatown. There's so much research that we all can do and all need to do to really start to look at all of these different layers involved in how we got here. You've given us so many seeds to just go and explore. Are there any Black educators that you would like to thank? Miss Harrison, who is from Africatown, who was my 12th grade English teacher, where I learned about Langston Hughes and Maya Angelou. And in this class, you know, we, we had to recite poems and we had to read about all these Black poets and writers. So I think Miss Harrison, I think Miss Buford, who was from Africatown, who was my high school economics teacher who taught us about franchises and, and how to open your own business. I think Mr. Spradley, my seventh grade science teacher, who also went to high school with my mother, you know, we learned all about the brain, the eye, and the periodic table. You know, I had F.E. Iron. So I remember, you know, that, you know, I can remember that periodic table. So, and I also still see him in the community as well. And I would like to thank Jesse Ellaby from Bishop State Community College, who was over the early childhood education program, who, you know, saw in this young 20, 21 year old to recommend me to be hired at the community college in the preschool daycare center, because I was a young, young, naive person. So that was some big shoes to fill to work in a, and with Miss Ellaby, one thing she did 
she taught us, you know, this is our daycare center preschool was not a babysitting service. It was a learning facility. And that's what she always taught us. She's like, this is not a babysitting service. No, this is a learning facility. And our kids learn. So I think Jesse Ellaby as well. So Miss Ellaby, Mrs. Spradlin, Miss Buford, and Miss Harrison. Where can people connect with you to learn more about the Clotilda Descendants Association and how they can support you? We have a website. It is theclotildastory.com. Theclotildastory.com. Thank you again, Ms. Davis, for sharing your story and everything that you have done and everything that your ancestors have done. It was, it is, and it always will be worth it. So thank you. And thank you so much. I really, I really, really, truly enjoyed this. Thank you for listening to this episode of Black Educators Matter. Are you ready to share your story? Visit us online at www.blackeducatorsmatter.org to sign up. Remember, make excellence equitable and thank a Black teacher today.